Welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids, a podcast that steps into alternative education, parenting, and living a funner, fuller family life. I'm Robin, home educator, unschooling mom to two funny, eclectic kids, and we're here to create a space for families to listen, connect, learn from others, and be inspired. Join us every two weeks to hear interviews and tips from experts in learning, education, and parenting, and stories from families that are playing full out in the arena of life and education. World schooling, unschooling, alternative schooling, homeschooling, or just creating a whole new style of learning. And this next episode that you're about to enjoy is brought to you by Kindred Bravely. Kindred Bravely is a premium maternity and nursing brand that makes it easy for mothers to find functional, stylish, comfortable clothing. Since launching in 2015, Kindred Bravely has grown into a sisterhood of mums who help each other transition from the bump to the breast and beyond. Kindred Bravely is here for mums no matter where they are on their motherhood journey. Their mission is a comfortable bra in every nursing mother's wardrobe. They offer premium, super soft fabrics, including bamboo and organic cotton. They have supportive wire-free bras for a variety of sizes, including special busty sizing, and as well as bras for all occasions, nursing, pumping, sports bras, sleep and comfort bras, and versatile everyday bras, as well as undies, loungewear, sleepwear, and activewear. If you want to check out their amazing selection of clothing, you can visit kindredbravely.com. And if you use my discount code, homeschool20, you'll save 20% off on your purchase. And to make it easy for you, I've included kindredbravely.com in my show notes, so it's an easy click away, as well as the discount code homeschool20 to save 20% off. And keep on the lookout because Kindred Bravely and Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids will be running a special giveaway coming up soon. Just look for the details on Instagram or Facebook at Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids. Welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids. My name is Robin Robertson and I'm your host and creator of the show. I'm also an unschooling parent to two kids and this podcast is for you and me. As a home educating parent, I had the same questions, the same fears, the same doubts that I'm sure you have had or have. And I wanted community, connection, and encouragement, as well as, you know, some information and answers to those questions that I had. And this podcast platform is a way to offer all of those to you and take part in all of that myself as well. So really, thank you for being on this journey with me. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. One of the other things I wanted to give out are to my wonderful patrons. If you aren't already part of the Patreon community, just go to patreon.com slash honey, I'm homeschooling the kids and become a patron. It's a great way to help support the show. We're in our sixth season. And in order for me to do these wonderful things, share these wonderful stories that I've been able to share on this show, uh, the Patreon community helps me to do that. And I didn't want to miss any special shout outs. uh, So I have a few shout outs from past, present, and I don't want to say old, but veteran patrons and new patrons as well. So thank you again. Maybe this is the second or third time you've been, you've had a shout out, depending how long you've been with us. But Chrissy Florence, Carly Cardwell, Rachel Hill, Smarel Nicole, Carla Uchuk, Cancion, Jennifer Coons, Marnie Love, Janine Giesbrecht, 
Paper Muna, Kristen Swindles, Delena Lee, Carlin Crevcour, and watch out for Carleen. She'll be back on the show again soon. Emily, MCC, <laughs> Britton Sobey. Thank you so much for your support, your new support or your support over the years. It's truly appreciated. And now to this episode with the wonderful Julie Bogart. This is really a great conversation. This is the second time Julie has joined me for an intimate conversation and interview. And if you don't already know Julie, she's the creator of the award-winning innovative online writing program called Brave Writer and the fast-growing weekly habit called Poetry Tea Time. She home-educated her own five children who are now globe-trotting adults. She lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, and can be found sipping a cup of tea, planning her next visit to one of her lifelong learning kids, and as well writing books. And this episode in particular, we talked about her book, Raising Critical Thinkers. It's a really, really excellent book. It's had me think and stop and do a lot of these exercises with my kids and myself. So for this interview, Julie joined me in my club Honey, I'm homeschooling on Clubhouse. It was her first time on Clubhouse. It was pretty exciting. We had a great, engaging conversation as well as questions from the audience as well. So enjoy. And one last thing, there's one last little surprise as well for you for this episode. Oh, everyone. (laughs) I thought, I wonder how many will join if I do open a little bit early, but there's a few coming on. Welcome, everybody. Great to see you. Some I already know, some I'm looking forward to getting to know as well. Hi, Tyra. Welcome. Hello. (laughs) Hi, Julie. Hello. It's great to be here. We're excited to have you. It's so good. So I think what I'll do, we have a few more minutes until we hit four o'clock. So we'll let people start to come in. Um, Maybe I'll just begin with a few little notes of housekeeping that we can repeat as well as a reminder later on. Um, But we can do that too. The replays are on. So this room will be recorded. The replays will be available here on the club. So if you're new to Clubhouse or you're just coming in and you're not sure how that works, you actually can just go back to the club, Honey, I'm Homeschooling. You can see at the top, the greenhouse, if you tap the greenhouse and follow or join. If you scroll to the bottom of the club, the replays are available there. And that's where you'll find this replay once this room is done. Um, So this room, the replays won't be up until it's done and processed. After that, I will share this replay on my podcast, Honey of Homeschooling the Kids. So if for some reason you can't get back here to listen to the replay, it will be available on Honey of Homeschooling the Kids. I just can't give you an exact date of when it's going to be aired just yet, but it will be sooner than later. So that will be available in case you you have to step out or you have to go somewhere and and miss part of this. So... um, If you are new to here, welcome. This club is Honey I'm Homeschooling. We actually host this room every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Mountain Time, 6 p.m. Eastern. Tyra and I always co-host together, and sometimes it's just us. Many times we have a guest, though, that joins us as well, and it's usually on a specific theme or topic as well. My name is Robin Robertson. If you don't already know me, I'm the creator and host of the podcast, Honey I'm Homeschooling the Kids, which is the namesake for this club. I have two kids, and we've been doing this unschooling, home-educating, 
learning as we go, <laughs> shifting and growing for about nine years and counting. And my kids are 15 and 12 now. So um, that's a little bit of my background. What I will do is we'll hand this over to Tyra to do a quick introduction and then to Julie to do a quick introduction, who you are, what you do, in case anyone doesn't know. Um, and then we can start the conversation. I will honor four o'clock, so we won't start just yet. We'll let people arrive as well. Um, what else? This room will be kept to an hour. Uh, we are going to actually, I'll do that right now. I'm going to turn off hand raising uh, for now. And then what we will do is we'll open hand raising for the last 15 minutes. So if anyone has a question for Julie uh, or anything maybe we're talking about, you want a bit more explanation, anything else maybe you found in the book, Raising Critical Thinkers, uh, then you can come up and ask. In the meantime, if you have a burning question you don't want to forget, just DM it. That little airplane at the bottom right corner of your screen on your phone, tap that and you can send the message to myself or to Tyra and we can make sure it gets answered either through the conversation or at the end of at the Q&A as well. Um, okay, I just wanted to make sure I covered everything and I'm not missing anything. Um, Tyra, am I forgetting anything right now? Um, just, uh, of course, you forgot about the, well, I don't know, because I think I came when you were speaking, so I don't know what you said before. But. Nothing too crazy. I just wanted to, to make, to get things going and, and, uh, reminders about the replays and welcome. The big thing okay. is welcome everybody. Yeah. Um, well, I, well, I just wanted to mention that, um, probably when, um, Robin turns off the hand raising, I um turn turn it turns it back on. I'm sorry. I have a game to give away. It's called Swish. It is a critical thinking game. So I um I'll have that. Also for those who don't know me, I'm Tyra. I um, <clears throat> homeschooled my daughter um, for about eight and a half years. She has graduated as an unschooler and a game schooler. So we transitioned into unschooling after about two and a half years so i'm excited to listen to what julie has to say so back to you robin all right so welcome everyone i know everyone's just joining uh we will and you can come and go uh this will be available on the replay so if you've missed part of it you will be able to listen again after um just give it a little bit to process this will be available here in my club honey i'm homeschooling or on my podcast at a later date as well I do want to say that we are actually going to pin links at the top as well. So right now I have our next homeschooling summit here on Clubhouse, How to Be an Awesome Homeschooler, March 18th. That's pinned at the top. Uh, so when things come up in the conversation, like Julie's book, for example, that's going to be coming up right away, I'm going to pin those links at the top. It's going to be easy for you then to tap on that link and to go to that website and find out any more information. You'll have all that available right there as well. So I, uh, that will be at the top. Just, just scroll to the top and you'll find that. I'm going to stop talking. I think if there's anything I need to share or fill in, I can do that as we go along. Uh, and I'm going to pass the mic to Julie. Julie, welcome. We're excited to have you here today. I know everyone is like, yes, I can't wait to listen to Julie and talk about <laughs> this book. So I'm going to pass the mic to you. I'll let you introduce yourself, 
who are you and what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This is a really fun format. And hello to everybody who's here. I've been scrolling over your pictures and I'm I'm just amazed. It's it's such a wonderful, diverse group of people and educators, parents. Um, so I'm Julie Bogart. I have five adult children. I homeschooled them full-time for 17 years. Some of them did some high school, some did part-time, a couple did full-time. Uh, they are all gainfully employed adults. I always like to let everyone know that that is a possible outcome of all this home education. Um, I'm a writer and a business owner. I started my company, Brave Writer, in January of 2000 with the hope that we would be able to raise children who saw writing as a tool of self-expression, not merely a subject they had to pass to get into college, right? So writing for me is um, as available as speech. It's something that I use as just another mode of connecting to an audience and to readers so that we can exchange ideas. And when I wrote uh, The Brave Learner and now Raising Critical Thinkers, my most eager anticipation for the day of publication was not whether or not I'd hit any bestseller lists. I just couldn't wait to talk about the contents. Um, I spent so much time immersing myself in these ideas and research, and I'm just truly looking forward to having an actual conversation about them. The podcasts that I've been doing and the interviews on radio, etc., have just been so enlivening, and I think we're going to have a really good time tonight. I think so as well. So I have actually Brave Writer Writer printed at the top, your website, so if anyone wants to tap that, then I'll share your book, Raising Critical Thinkers. But I think the first question is the why. Why? (laughs) So your your kids, like you said, they're gainfully employed. They're all all adults. You're done homeschooling and raising them within your home. I think you're always a mother, no matter what, right? For sure. (laughs) Why why now? Why now that your, your children are all kind of, you know, forging their own lives in a very, in a way really separate from the home. Why is this book important to you? Well, I feel like I've been thinking about and writing it for 25 years. In fact, when I was first pitching a book, this is the one I wanted to write, but we realized, my agent and I, that The Brave Learner was the right one to start with. Uh, I wanted to sort of codify the homeschooling and education and parenting research and experiences that I'd gathered over the last two decades into a book that would be a real tool for the people who already know me and have followed me for so long. But starting with the dawn of the internet in the late 1990s, I was sort of flabbergasted by how unkind we can be to each other when we disagree online. So whereas I was used to going to La Leche League meetings and park days and church events and, you know, uh, out and about with adults who were similar to me, we were careful in person. We didn't attack each other's points of view. We avoided certain subjects. We would, you know, give the side eye if somebody crossed a line that made people uncomfortable. But somehow, the moment that we bounded through the doors of the World Wide Web and suddenly posted on a discussion board, all bets were off. People were in bloodbaths over OxyClean and cloth diapers and whether or not to bottle feed, right? And so I was shocked by this development. And don't even get me started on religion and politics. That escalated very quickly to people who really liked each other suddenly not liking each other. 
And so I became fascinated both with why we believe we're right, why we double down so hard in the face of people we care about showing us a different version or a different belief system, and what can we do to recapture sort of civil discourse while growing and learning. I, I was fascinated by all of it. Really, the foundation is, why do we think what we think, and why are we so certain we're right? Uh, and I spent the last several decades, I went to grad school, I've been doing reading, I've been thinking about these ideas for a long time. So when I finally got the book contract, I finally got to just dig in, and you know, having grown children makes that easier, right? I could dedicate full days to research and writing uh, at a pace that I could not do when I was still homeschooling. I just want to say, Julie, that if you see my mic going on and off like that, that means yes. we're, clap we're clapping. That's oh, that's clapping. adorable. I love yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah. So that's like you say something and I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I, That's my clapping, but being polite and not interrupting you. So if anyone has a party hat and you're new to Clubhouse, that's how that we this clap. So, um, I love it. Okay. So, so critical thinkers, what then is a critical thinker? What, what does it mean to be a critical thinker in today's world? Well, you know, probably the way I'm defining it is unique on some level to me. Uh, it's one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book. Whenever I looked up critical thinking, especially in education spaces, critical thinking has a lot to do with how do we evaluate arguments out there? Like, how do we figure out how that other guy is thinking poorly, right? Like, if you think about most Facebook conversations, people all think they're good critical thinkers. In fact, I think most people think they're good critical thinkers the way they think they're good drivers, right? We know for a fact not everyone's a good driver, but I've yet to meet someone who admits it. Critical thinking is similar. We all are so persuaded by our own thought processes, and we're such fans of the conclusions we draw that we all assume we're really, we're really good at thinking. And so what we want to do is point out how the other person is not a good thinker. Of course, this never goes well. So when I started doing this research and thinking about thinking and participating on all these discussion boards and email lists where conversations were filled with you know, hostility and anger and discussion, I realized that the key to thinking well was actually self-awareness. It was the capacity to notice your own bias as it was kicking into gear. It's the capacity to recognize when what's at stake for you interferes with your ability to listen or to hear information that makes you uncomfortable, before we can evaluate evidence, we have to have some capacity to recognize where we stand on the issue and why we are so invested in our own way of thinking. So in my view, critical thinking is self-aware thinking. It's not just focusing on the other guy. Okay, self-awareness. All right. So I know, like, so I have your book and I haven't actually read the whole thing yet because, uh, to be honest, I thought I'm just going to read it through, like, from beginning to end, and then I'll go slowly. And then this way I've read everything and then I can break it up and go bit by bit. 
I opened the book and I was like, there's no way I can read this through quickly. <laughs> I have to. <laughs> I have to go bit by bit, chunk by chunk. And the best thing about it is that it has the practices and examples, which actually it's going slowly because I, you know, I do them with myself. My husband and I talk about them. Then my kids and I do them. And so we're moving slowly through that. But I know there are parts where you talk about self-awareness and the importance of that versus something like being open-minded, which I think is a value we all want to have, being open-minded. Uh, and you, you talk about the, the difference of self-awareness is actually one of the keys to leading us into being a better critical thinker or, or practicing critical thinking um, or, and doing that. But, you know, how do we even get there? Because I think we all like to say, oh, I'm a very self-aware person. Like I've lived so many years, I've experienced life, uh, you know, I like to think that I'm self-aware, but, but are we? Are there, are there questions we can ask ourselves? Is there a scale that we can be on and see, okay, maybe I'm at a two right now when I thought I was at a nine? Yeah, so self-awareness uh, in some areas is natural. Like we might be aware when we're hungry. We might be aware when we're tired. We might be aware when we're annoyed with one of our kids, right? So there's a self-awareness around those pieces. Where I think we lack self-awareness is in the way that we react when somebody is not in agreement with us. So let me give you an example. Uh, you're scrolling through Facebook and some person you haven't talked to since high school is suddenly your Facebook friend and you have some memory of what they were like in high school, right? And all of a sudden, they post a political article, and it changes exactly how you feel about them. Immediately, you're like, wow, can't believe that's her view. I, I liked her in high school. What is she thinking? So the energy is all focused on her. Self-awareness in that moment would be, wow, what is this reactivity in me? Why do I need her to agree with me for me to still value her as a person? What is being animated inside of me. And usually what is going on is that there is something at stake. So when you're seeing an article posted or reading a tweet or following on Instagram and somebody posts a caption that kind of tweaks you, that makes you angry or makes you uncomfortable or agitates you, self-awareness in that moment isn't about how to defend your position against this obviously errant person. It's pausing to ask yourself, well, what did I hope would be true? What do I still hope is true? What's at stake for me to even consider this other person's perspective? What would I risk? What would I lose? Which loyalties in my life would I be putting at risk by giving myself the opportunity to consider these ideas that have never been available to me before? That's what I mean by self-awareness. There, there's a, a notion in popular thinking practice and politics and good character building that what we need in our culture is more tolerance. So we talk about tolerance sort of as though I'm the person whose life makes sense, but if I'm a good person, I'll tolerate the people whose lives don't make sense to me, right? I'll tolerate them. I'll put up with them. I'll allow them to have their own little fig tree and they can sit under it and be happy. And we see it as this sort of beatific, sort of condescending way of being toward another person. But I flipped it on its head in my book. For me, tolerance is not about tolerating them. 
It's learning to tolerate my own discomfort while I'm making room for an, a, a viewpoint that contradicts what I want to be true. And that doesn't make that viewpoint true, by the way. All we're doing is learning to understand how that viewpoint lives for the other person, how it animates them, how it helps them paint a picture of what a beautiful life would be for them. And that can include pretty heinous beliefs. I mean, a murderer thinks eliminating another person is going to create a more beautiful life for them. Not, this is not about morals. This is actually understanding from the inside how beliefs function for other people. And when we do that, there's a certain amount of our own discomfort that we have to tolerate to even be able to give room for that to occur. Yeah, absolutely. I get that completely. So it's it's not even, well, I think, the, well, I go back to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewind a little bit because I think sometimes our emotions are there because isn't part of it our natural human instinct to not be outed by our tribe, essentially, by oh, our yes. community. So we want to, like, I think our instinct is to protect ourselves. We don't want to be on the outside of our circle. We don't want to be on the outside of our community. We want to stay close within so that we have that belonging and protection. And in a way, all our world kind of plays on that survival instinct <laughs> in so, on so many levels. A hundred percent. In fact, Loyalty to a community is the number one influencer on the beliefs that you hold. So when we talk about cults, and a lot of people love to point to people who are, quote, in cults and therefore stupid, did not understand that they were joining something insidious, what we're actually saying is all of us have that propensity, whether you're a fan of a sports team or you're a religious community member or you join a political activism group we tend to identify with groups of people because our primal need is for belonging. So what happens is when we are considering our belief structure, we are actually filtering it first through the people that we value the most. And obviously with children, that first group is the family. You know, when your children are born, when they're babies, they don't come into the world thinking, it's a really great idea for me to brush my teeth and wash my hands. That's a behavior and a belief system that parents impose on children who would rather not brush their teeth and would rather not wash their hands. Their personal experience and perception is, these are inconvenient, or I don't like water on my hands, or the taste of the toothpaste is yucky, right? And so what do we do? We indoctrinate them into the family value system, which says actually teeth need to be scrubbed so they don't get cavities. Hands need to be washed so you don't get germs. And interestingly, we don't actually give our kids a chance to critically think about that. We ask them to uncritically accept our authority and in some cases even punish them if they don't cooperate obediently. We actually challenge their perceptions with obedience rather than walking them through any kind of critical thinking process. So if we want to grow a critical thinker and we want them to learn how to think on their own two feet, not be susceptible to the leadership of authoritarian sort of gurus or people who you know run groups, it's really helpful to teach them how to collect their own experiences and data 
and be able to make judgment calls. So one of the examples I like to use is around hand washing. So you've got this five-year-old and he's saying, I don't want to wash my hands. I hate the water. And you say, oh, but what about invisible germs that live on your skin that if you touch the food will get in your body and make you sick? I mean, is your child just supposed to take your word for it? And they've never seen a germ and they don't know if they'll get sick. And by the way, haven't they been eating Cheerios off the floor since they were nine months old and not getting sick? <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> so they're looking at you like you're just speaking this strange language and expecting them to agree when their world, their perceptions doesn't align. So one of the things you can do is you can start with, well, let's find out what it is about the water you don't like. Shall I take the temperature of it and we try cold, warm, hot, and see which one you like best? So you start testing with the thermometer. Thermometer. Then the child says, nope, don't like any of those. So what is it? Is it the wetness on your hands? Yep, I don't like my hands to be wet. Well, let's see. There are other ways to kill germs. We could use hand sanitizer, which dries really fast. We could use a baby wipe. We could use a blow dryer and just use heat to kill the germs on your hand. Or we could even just roll the dice and not wash your hands for a week before dinner and just see if you get sick. These are all options we never consider because we are so baked into our parental propaganda program that we want our children to uncritically adopt and then we're kind of shocked when they turn out to be teenagers who uncritically adopt their peer group's authority. Do you see what I'm saying? So early on, we can be actually exploring with our kids and even challenging ourselves like, why do I believe this? Why do I assume that this is necessary, right? Okay, so I think this is actually a good segue. I'm getting questions as well (laughs) in the DM. Uh, One particular to what you just said, and I think this is a great way to move into some of the ways that you talk about um, and that you explain that we can begin doing this with our kids in different ages, because you do break it down into the younger ages, the middle and the older ages as well, because of you know how they can understand their concepts and their ability as well in that. So, um, so one of the questions that I received in the back chat is, but what about those that have the social media degrees? I think this is when you're talking about helping our children to learn to collect their own experiences and data and how to sift through all of that mountain of data that, and information oh, that we get, right? That's right. So, so the question is, what about those that have the social media degrees? Social media is in quotes. <laughs> the election coming. Everyone's a political scientist. The Facebook medical degrees. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you separate opinions? She said, opinions are not facts. So no. where do we even begin? Right. So critical thinking starts with caring, right? You cannot evaluate data if you don't care to know the data sources. So here's a good example. Um, I share it in the book and I like it because it's fairly neutral. It's not about politics. So one day I was sitting with my boyfriend and he happens to be a huge sports fan, as am I, by the way. I I mean, we go pretty toe-to-toe on sports and we both know sports really well. So I was scrolling through Instagram and I noticed that Naomi Osaka, the world's number one tennis player for women... Uh, had served her fastest serve in her life. And what I read on the screen was that she had served a 193 mile per hour serve 
This is what I believed I read. Wow. Wow. So that, yes. So that evening, I'm sitting with my boyfriend and I tell him this amazing fact. And he immediately claps back and he says, Julie, that can't be true. And I said, no, I saw it. And I'm so tired of you telling me that my facts aren't true. I am giving you a fact right now. And I need you to hear that it's a fact. I'm tired of being told that my facts aren't accurate. He's like, but Julie, I know it's not accurate. I'm like, how can you know that? I saw it. And he says, because the fastest serve that a man has ever served is under 160 miles per hour. And then I got nervous. I said, well, well, well how, how do you know that? He's like, I don't know. I've been watching tennis for years. I just happen to know that women serve in the range of like 110 to 120 miles an hour. So I really seriously doubt she hit the ball 193 miles per hour fast. I mean, if it hit you, that would leave a bad mark. It would be injurious. So then I'm like, well, I'm going to show you because maybe it was misrepresented, but I'm going to show you that I had the fact, at least according to this website. So I go in, I get on Instagram and I'm scrolling. And as I'm scrolling, trying to find this fact, my boyfriend says, where was the tournament that she played in? And I said, Australian Open. And he said, could it have been in kilometers per hour? And of course, that's exactly what it was. And then I arrived at the page and we see that that's what it is. And I realized I did not know the benchmarks for that field, right? So I didn't know what ball speeds are measured for tennis. So I'm reading 193 and I'm supplying my standard of measurement that I'm used to seeing everywhere, which is miles. I didn't even pause to think it could be kilometers, and I couldn't even evaluate the number because I did not know the benchmarks of the field. So when we're teaching our kids, a couple of things that we want to do is we want to find the source. We want to find the usual tool of measurement that is used in that field. And then we want to understand the benchmarks for that field so that we can actually evaluate data before we're just passing on misinformation. So that's one style of vetting. I mean, I have multiple suggested tools in my critical thinking starts with caring chapter, but that's one of the key pieces that we could be using to understand data and the way that it comes to us. Okay, okay. So I'm going to ask you a question, and, and, and I'm, I'm thinking about that process as well and any difficulty that maybe comes up with all of the information that we have at our fingertips right now. I, I, actually, I actually want to preclude this with actually, this is a difference that I see, and I think my husband and I watched this movie on Netflix the other night. It was a, I can't remember the name. I'm sorry. I can find it and share it later, but it takes place during World War I in England, it's a cute little film, and it was about a woman who um, becomes a writer. A, a writer, she writes mm. um, for, I think it was the Ministry of Information, <laughs> Ministry of Propaganda, something like that, for the, minist- the, the, the British ministry, because they wanted to um, pump up the war efforts, and there were certain stories that they wanted told to their public, essentially, right? And it, it made me think... Um, you know, it made me think at one time, it felt like we lived in a world where it was same as it is now, but we had just had information from pretty well one or two sources. It wasn't right. a huge difference, but it still was in some ways information that was filtered to us for a specific reason or goal. 
maybe we did not always have a chance to, um, you know, maybe there was a certain reason be behind why we were given that information. Now the difference is, is, you know, the goal is still similar probably in some ways, but we have so many sources. It's not one or two main sources. It's not you turn on the radio and you have three channels to listen to. That's right. You have three news stations and that's it. It's like Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, plus all of your cable news, plus, I mean, I don't even have to name all of it, all the information that we have access to. So it's in some ways it's a little bit different um, because there's just so much information I think of it like, actually, my kids and I did the exercise the other day that you have in your book where we choose a news topic and we have three mm. or four different sources mm. and then we compare them. We, we, we go through, in, in Julie's book, she has, she actually begins with essential vocabulary and the, you encourage the readers to think about the meanings of the vocabulary. So the words are fact, interpretation, evidence, perspective, opinion, prejudice, bias, belief, story and worldview. So starting with the fact, trying to pull the fact from the, the news sources, <laughs> this, this is what happened. And it was like, you know, my kids, I think at the point were just like, we just don't even want to do this anymore. Wow. There were no facts. The facts that we found were we could confirm that one city was actually about 30 kilometers from <laughs> that was about the like or that this country happens to be in this continent. Those were about the extent of the facts that were offered. Everything else was just interpretations and opinions that, I mean, we couldn't really source to be even factual in the end. How powerful. What a powerful ex experience for your kids to realize that when we're looking at a story, and what, what I say about facts is it's irreducible information. It cannot be reduced any further. So if we say water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius, there's nothing more to say about that. If we decide that boiling water is a good thing or a bad thing, that is no longer just the fact. However, you can have perspective, bias, opinion about a fact, and the fact can still be true. So you could say boiling water is great. The boiling water part is factual, and whether or not you agree that it's great is separate from that. So either way, you can still have a fact. What I want us to notice is how alarming it is, and I think you just hit on this perfectly, that every fact lives inside a story. We tend to think there's a way to communicate objectively, but that's actually not the case. So what we want to do is recognize the story, almost like a Russian nesting doll. What are the features that shape and size how we feel about that fact? Because as we do that, it doesn't mean that the facts are no longer available to us. It's that it's important to read multiple perspectives so that we have multiple experiences of the facts and possible interpretations. I was paying attention today. I was following this discussion around, um, there are people that I follow on, on Instagram right now that are being said to be in a cult. So I've been watching the conversation around cults really carefully. And what's been fascinating to me is to watch the way people receive testimonies from individuals uncritically. So a person mm -hmm. will make a statement and then they will share their experience and then they will draw a conclusion. 
And none of those things are vetted. There's no way to know whether they're based in fact, but particularly the viewpoint. Like it's one thing to say, well, I spoke with this person. Now they don't respond to my texts. That could be facts. But then to say they were told by the organization not to text me, that person has no way of knowing that. They've added a story to the facts. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And that's what helps us think more critically about all the news we consume. It almost makes me not to con- want to consume any news. <laughs> well, you know what? It's, 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 it's a huge thing, right? That's a lot of effort and time to to dissect that. It, although, although like, but maybe it's going into it, like you said, with self-awareness, right? It's exactly. Oh my goodness. So here's the, here's the beautiful part of that understanding is that now you actually are free to listen to the news. Before you listened and perhaps received information uncritically. Now you listen and you're like, oh, well, I know I'm listening to this one cable channel And typically, they come from this perspective. So I know they're sharing a perspective, and I can consider that perspective and imagine what's at stake for them. I remember watching cable news, and someone who I actually enjoy listening to took a position on a social issue. And if you were used to the way this person communicated and you aligned with her politically, you would have felt that she was giving an objective report. But I used to align differently with that one social issue. And so I could tell what rhetoric she was using that actually did not accurately represent the pro side of this issue. And I think that's something that is such an amazing skill once you develop it, because I could sort of sort through her perspective to hear what she felt was of concern without just a knee-jerk reaction. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have this capacity to hold more viewpoints, not fewer, and to not look down on people for having a viewpoint because we've got them too, but to at least name the viewpoint so that we're able to understand the facts within their particular context. It's exhausting, I know. You can't do it for everything, but it's um, actually pretty liberating once you get used to it. It is. And I, it's more like, a phew, it is. But at the same time, it's like you're bringing it. It's true. It's it's essential, right? As And I think that's right. for most of us in this room, or for many of us, uh, many of us are home educating our kids, or we're thinking about it, or we're very um, passionate parents, let's say. Yes. In, in the world, in, in how the world that's shaping around our family and our children and their childhood, that we're helping to and hoping that we're creating a, a joyful, safe, good, positive childhood, I guess, as much as you, you can be, right? So, a hundred percent. And this honestly, is important to hear. And, yes, and that's and why it's like a phew. It's good. You're bringing it. It's good. Well, yes. So we kind of got into sort of like bigger adult world. But if you bring it down into the home, it's actually pretty simple stuff. You've got two kids fighting over the controller for a video game. This is a moment for critical thinking. It's not a moment for controlling. It's It, it could be a moment for therapy, uh, depending on how harsh they are with each other. But you're basically wanting to value the perspective and the story for each child. This is something we used to do in, in my family a lot. My husband and I would sit down, the two kids who were in conflict, and we would actually treat it like couples therapy. We would say, okay, you know, Johanna, listen, Noah is going to tell you what he thinks happened. And he would share it. And then we would say to Johanna, can you say back to Noah 
in a way that he accepts his viewpoint. So she would sit there and have to work through the tendency or the temptation to say that his viewpoint was wrong. She had to re-represent it, just like in couples therapy, right? Like, I got to hear what my husband is thinking. He's got to hear what I'm thinking. And then we would flip it. Okay, now you tell your perspective. He's got to feed that back to you. And then we would sit with that for a few moments and say, how can we come up with a solution that values both of these viewpoints, that takes both of you into account? At that moment, you are actually teaching them how to think in that sort of critically thinking way, because that's what the best solutions do for all of our biggest problems. They gather more viewpoints and they take more perspectives into account. They don't only focus on conversion, getting everybody to agree with my superior take. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it makes absolute sense. It makes complete sense, yeah. And I think in the end, what that does then is it broadens our worldview <laughs> in many ways. It, it helps us with our self-awareness as well. And I also see empathy connected with that too, right? When you get get down to it as empathy for a fellow human being and that's right and where they're coming from and where their ideas are coming from as well you know if we protect the rights of others we protect the rights of all so if you think about in a family you've got all these little kids and everybody's sort of out for number one especially children because they only know their own personal perceptions of life and they make logical sense to them on their insides but if we start to show them that a different story lives in each member of the family and that story is important to that person. And we start to imagine how to ensure, for instance, everyone gets time on the computer or everyone gets a chance to pick the movie on Friday night or everyone's food choices matter. We are actually protecting everyone's safety in the family. Everyone gets to have their needs met. When we step in and solve problems and designate solutions and tell our kids how things should be, there's almost always someone who feels like they are being overlooked or that somehow their needs aren't as important. And I realize some of these things are a process. Like, I can't tell you how many solutions we tried for how to share a computer. We had one computer, five kids, and we must have gone through 25 different solution attempts, right? Eventually, the solution was buy another computer and have more options because we exhausted all the ones that we had before that. So I'm not saying this is easy or that things are easily fixed, but today my adult kids have told us that those processes are things that help them get along with roommates, get along in their boyfriend, girlfriend, or marriage partner relationships, or even in their work. One of my kids is a human rights lawyer. His entire life is dedicated to finding solutions for the maximum number of people and their welfare in places where they're being mistreated. I think it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's, it's I guess it's confirming in, in so many ways as well how setting the stage or supporting this from the family unit from as early as we can, I mean, everyone is going to come to it at different times, really does help in the long run, not just ourselves and our children, but others as well too, kind of like the trickle, trickle out or trickle down as well. So yeah, that's really clear as well. 
I actually want to just take a moment here. It's 4.38. We are here for the hour, which, sorry, 4.38 my time, which is mountain time. Um, we are in the room with Julie Bogart, and we're talking about her new book, Raising Critical Thinkers. At the top, I have the link pinned for Raising Critical Thinkers, so you can tap on that link and go to her site as well. And so we're exploring what it means to be a critical thinker, what it means for our world now, and different ways that we can support critical thinking for ourselves and for our children. So we're going to open up hand raising soon. Uh, Tyra, I, I've kind of, I've, I've been asking Julie questions. I saw you unmiked a few times. I want to hand it over to you. Is there anything you want to ask or share as well? I'm just sitting back loving all of this. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Although, Julie, you are like making me look at myself like, oh my gosh, I am like, I want to be right all the time. What, is, what does that make me? <laughs> right. Because I do, <laughs> I do have to be more self-aware, especially when I'm dealing with my daughter, you know, well, not dealing with her, but, you know, <laughs> she's, she's a grown up. And so I know I've told Robin and others that I'm having an issue accepting that. I don't know. I can't. It's, it's hard for me to see her grow up because that's my only child. And so uh. for a long time, I've always told her, oh, you know what? Figure that out on your own. You know, I'll tell you what I feel about it. But then you you find it on your own. But now it's like she's older and I'm like, I don't want you to make the mistakes I made. Listen to only me. <laughs> you know, you know, and it's like. I need, I need, I, you know, it's hard for me to let go, Julie. And I'm seeing when you are talking about how you need to be more self-aware. And with me being self, not being so self-aware and trying to keep her close, it's not letting her to solve those problems on her own, more critically on her own, instead of just taking my advice. Oh, I know what you mean. I mean, it was challenging for me. The 20, no one tells you this. You think the teens are hard. The 20s are challenging in a whole other way because you do not have the authority and you have a memory of having the power and you do not have the same level of responsibility for your children and they know it and they want some of that freedom. Uh, you know, my daughter Johanna worked as a social worker in the Bronx for a number of years uh, when she was 22 and 23. She traveled all through South America and Asia by herself for two years uh, in her 20s. These were scary for me as a mother, and I had lots of advice that went unheeded and was ultimately unnecessary. One thing she said to me that really struck me when I was concerned about, you know, safety or a feeling that she was too vulnerable to, you know, evildoers out there. She said to me, you know, mom, things are going to go wrong on this trip, but I'm not going to curl up into a ball and die. I'm going to do the next thing to solve whatever problem comes my way. And, you know, that was an amazing statement to me. I think so much of what we're motivated by as parents is to prevent the problem in the first place. But our children have so many more resources at every stage of development than we give them credit for. And they are not going to curl up into balls and die in our living rooms uh, at college once they're adults. They're going to take the problem, whether they've created it themselves or it's come to them, and they will have to troubleshoot and problem solve. And giving them practice while they're growing up 
so that they know they have that capability is one of the biggest gifts we can give our kids. You know what, Julie? We've been unschoolers for a while. And my daughter is complete. You know, I, I want her to be that way. In fact, that's how, that's why we started this. But when it comes to certain things, like my daughter has been making decisions on her own for herself since she was 12. But on, I realize now that on certain things, that's hard for me to let go. Like, you know, I'll just give an example. Like today, she wants to go somewhere. You know, she's, she's safe as far as, you know, what I had to do to, what she had to do to protect herself. And I know she's 19. She said, Mama, I'll be okay. She said, when I go, I know how to do things that I will be safe. And I was like, well, but, you know, I still was not accepting that. I still was not accepting mm. her plan, her thought of how she was going to protect herself and stay safe. It just wasn't enough for me because I wanted her to agree with mm. me. Mm. And, you know, and so uh, it, talking to you and hearing you talk, I'm looking back and I'm like, what am I doing? This is how I wanted to raise my child. And this is what she has become a person that is, you know, thinks for herself. But it's that I have this fear still in certain areas that I just want to hold on tight. But I, I know that she's grown. She's 19. And I know she's going to be okay. And I have to accept that. My husband's already there. He's like, oh, just let her be her. You know, my husband's so, you know, like, oh, it's going to be okay. She'll be all right. Me, it's harder. Me, it's like, if, if, I, if I give her all these facts and all these different, you know, scenarios, maybe she'll change her mind and think like me. I got to stop doing that. And I only do it in certain areas. I don't do it in all areas because right. she's pretty much the bomb in certain, in, in the majority of areas. It's just that some things, which I know she's fine in, is just that I'm not fine with it because I still view her as I still got to protect her. You know what I mean? So I do. And that's, I, I and so here's, so here's an opportunity to employ a little self-awareness. What's at stake for you is different than what's at stake for her. So what's at stake for her is an opportunity to experience the consequences of the decisions she's making for self-protection. And obviously, most of us, most of us are pretty interested in our own survival. So even if we don't have a ton of experience, we are going to do what we can, even in those moments where we haven't made great decisions to ensure our survival. And I, I can look back at myself at those ages and know how I learned those lessons. But she's only thinking about herself because that's what 19-year-olds do. You, on the other hand, are risking your daughter. So what's at stake for you is bigger. It is a person outside your control. And if you lost her, the devastation would be total. And so that's what drives us. So even naming that with our kids can be really powerful in this critical thinking experience. We can say the story I'm telling myself is that if you adopted all of my measures for safety, you would be safer and I could sleep better at night. But I know that's my story. I know that's what I'm telling myself. And what's, what's at stake for me is the fear that I would lose you and I don't know how I would go on without you. That's how much I love you. And I'm also going to sit with those feelings and not make you carry them. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. When we become self-aware, we can actually name the truth 
of what's going on for us instead of using our authority and our parental propaganda campaign on our kids. And boy, do they see through that. They immediately reject it and resist it because they're trying to develop their own set of values. But they will do a better job of that if they feel like you're their partner, not like you're their propaganda master. <laughs> Truly, right. what you just said was it, okay? <laughs> what you just said was exactly it. I have more to risk. Oh my gosh, this is like therapy. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> You're so welcome. Feel better so that when I talk to her again, we will talk where I will be more open to knowing that she knows what she can, that she's going to be okay, you know, and that, and I'll tell her why, why I feel this way is because you are my only child and I'm naming it. And That's I'm it. Naming that fear. Thank yeah, and, you, Julie. Thank and you're being you. and you're being vulnerable, right? So often when we're afraid, we go in almost like in a spirit of bullying, right? Like we're going to persuade them with all our facts and figures about how unsafe the world is instead of going in with the the softer heart which is I feel really vulnerable here. I'm watching my 19-year-old. You know, this is kind of what happened with my daughter, Johanna, going on a two-year solo backpacking trip through South and Central America. I was like, hand on heart, I am, I am feeling nervous and I don't want to stand in your way. And yet I can feel myself just like going on this emotional roller coaster. And so we talked about it like with love, not with my fear and my anxiety controlling the conversation and then making her resist it. Now, I will admit, it started with resistance and me lambasting her, right? Because that's what parents do. We're like, ah, I'm worried about you. Have you thought about this, this, and this? And then they come back and resist. And that's the moment you can check yourself and say, whoa, I am producing quite a big reaction. What is this coming from? Oh, I know. Something's at stake for me that I'm not naming. That's a good place to start. I like the term propaganda parenting. It's a good thing to keep in mind. I'll, I'm going to write that down and as a reminder for myself. <laughs> I do want to let everyone know that I did turn, I opened up hand raising. So if you do want to come up and ask Julie a question, the time is now. Um, awesome. And, and I know I want to be mindful of our time as well. So just if, if you're new and you're not sure how it works, just tap that hand at the bottom right of your screen and it will invite you up to the speaker panel to the stage and we can invite you up and then you can ask your question directly to Julie. I, I do see a few hands coming up. I'm getting a lot of DMs saying, this is fantastic. Thank you. Oh, nice. Everyone's enjoying it. So that is wonderful feedback. There's a few here I'll, I'll invite up as well and they should be coming any minute too. Um, I know that <laughs> I had the same experience as well. My son has been on his own self-directed learning journey, and he left home last year for six months at 14 Wow! Um, and came back at 15. And I know there was that was a big thing is um, not letting our fears override his decisions because he mm. actually had very clear, precise ideas of what he wanted to do, what he needed to do, and how he was going to handle it. Um, his maturity was exceptional, his thought process, and we found that it was our own personal fears that were impeding it. So mm. it was kind of like I went to bed at night and shed my tears when my husband and I were alone in our bedroom. So it wasn't our propaganda parenting overshadowing his, um, you know, his self-determination. Self yeah, right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. yeah amazing. 
that was the, you know, for me, that was, I'm just going to go to my room. I think I'm ready for bed. <laughs> and in the morning, it was a new day. Like, okay, okay, now we can, I can restart. So yeah, I, I like that. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to remember the propaganda parenting. <laughs> so welcome, Amira. Thank you for coming up. I will, I'll pass the mic to you. What question would you like to ask or anything you'd like to share? Hi, um, thank you so much for the room. I can't believe how, like I messaged you, um, it's so relevant to what I've, what's been bothering me the last, last little while. Um, I've been uh, listening to a lot of podcasts about cults and just today, this morning, I, I, I thought to myself, I have to look up what critical thinking actually means because uh, I need to pretend, stop pretending to know what, what it means. Um, so um, I'm really happy I found you and I will definitely uh, get the book. Um, my question is, is there anything you would like to share with us that didn't make it to, um, in the book? Oh, that didn't make it into the book. That's interesting. You know, the, the book is like over 300 pages. So I think I did pretty much get everything in there <laughs> that I was hoping people would take. Um, in fact, I really loved that Robin had said at the beginning that she's kind of moving through it slowly, even though she had originally thought she could read it quickly. These processes that I recommend in the book could form the foundation of an entire year's worth of, um, of activity with your kids. It could be its own school subject for homeschoolers or, you know, sort of extracurricular supplemental for kids who are in traditional school. And the reason is there's no uh, end date. We're all learning at all times. We're all subject to our own belief systems and our loyalties and our past and experiences. So this is kind of like becoming good at tennis. It takes time. It takes practice. It takes revisiting ideas over and over um, so that you become more facile in your application of them. And so, yeah, I would say that the number one idea for me that I hoped people would take from my book is that there is an alternative to being right. There's an alternative to certainty. We drive for certainty. We drive for rightness because our schools have trained us to believe there's one right answer. And if you get it, then you get it right on the test. And if you don't, you're going to get a bad grade. So we're all conditioned to thinking there's one authority source, one right answer, and we'll all agree. And of course, that's not how it is. So the alternative to that is what I would call intimacy. And intimacy doesn't have an end date. Becoming more intimate with subjects, with ideas, with your marriage partner or the man or woman that you're dating or your children or um, a language you're learning, intimacy means that you experience that subject, that person, those ideas with more of yourself. And so we have to know more of ourselves to understand how we're engaging with this other thing. So I am all about not finding the right answer, but just getting it, getting how it is for the other person, getting how it is in this field of study, getting how it is for this community, and allowing more of yourself to be present in that relationship. That combination deepens thinking, believe it or not intimacy. I actually mm. was not expecting you to say that word, but okay, intimacy. I get it. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit longer as well. All right. Thank you, Amira. Was your, is there anything you wanted to add to that no, too? Thank you so much. And again, I'm so happy I found this room. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Amira. I'm, I'm happy you came up as well and asked the question. 
We will move to Beatrice. Beatrice, welcome. How are you? I'm going to pass the mic to you. What would you like to share or ask? Hello. Nice to meet you, Julie. Hi, Tyra. This is so wonderful. Um, I have a question about uh, resistance to the system because when, when you use the word kind of propaganda, kind of, you know, parenting propaganda, I'm thinking of the many times in which I would like to slow everything down. We do something called a family meeting, which involves yes. if there's an injustice in the house, anyone can call a family meeting. Everybody has to sit down. It's not coming from the top down or whatever. It's like, it's what we say when there's a crisis. And so then we sit and discuss and it takes time. And, you know, you're talking about intimacy, Julie, and it takes kind of a willingness to be soft and quiet and respectful. But that doesn't always happen in the larger no. community. And so I am curious about how you can support parents and your ideas around this um, to understand just how challenging, you know, the empathy towards often whoever is the primary caretaker to have to bridge that because it is a really um, countercultural move to do stuff like that. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. And I'm so grateful you all are here. Thank you. Oh, thank you for asking that question. So let me just make sure I understand it. Are you asking me um, how to bring this kind of way of thinking to people outside your family? Or are you asking how to interact with people outside your family who don't share this understanding? Thank you. Yeah, I, I didn't ask a clear question. I think I wanted to hear from you about what systems are in place that enable kind of propaganda parenting oh, and oh oh gotcha about in that ter in terms of that like the power relationships are involved around that and why it is so hard as a parent even when you have an intention to be you know respectful to your children so on and so forth but to default into that I, does that make sense yes totally i've got it yep i've got it so first of all we have a really high value around obedience in our culture that children uh, need a lot of governing and directing and organizing and one way they symbolize their love and cooperation in the family is to obey the parents right so that goes really far back in parenting language there are a lot of parenting styles now attachment parenting um, respectful parenting gentle parenting like so many ways that are now a part of our lexicon of ideas. And I think they, that they have a lot of merit. I would say that I was sort of raised um, myself as a parent on the attachment mentality. Here's what I would say, though. Sometimes unschooling, attachment parenting, some of these other uh, value sets, um, ignore a little bit the parental need that is being submerged for the sake of creating conditions that are really conducive to the child. So what I'm trying to advocate for is that each person in the family has a voice. The notion that if we become more self-aware and we are able to recognize what's at stake for us, we'll start telling truths instead of trying to organize or manipulate the family into a system. So, for instance, this program that I told you where I would we'd sit our kids down and have them face each other, while I think the fruit of that was really valuable, there were times when it felt contrived or manipulative, and I remember overhearing my kids in the other room saying, we've got to work this problem out, or mom and dad are going to make us sit down and talk to each other, right? Like, there's, there's reality, and then there's our ideals, and I'm sort of a realist, so at the end of the day, 
if we are wanting to get out of parental propaganda, we have to let go of ideology, the belief that there's a system that will save us and actually stay present to what's true in this moment. And any insight you get is manna, uh, as they say in the Hebrew Bible. It, it lasts for a day. There's no once-for-all way that's going to alleviate conflict, disagreement, confusion, misunderstanding, hurt feelings, or defensiveness. There isn't. But we can get more skillful with the tools. And the tools that I think help us the most are staying self-aware and being able in that moment to give room and space to a person's perspective that makes no sense to us, making more room to try and get where they're coming from for themselves. Doesn't mean agreement, doesn't mean they're right. It's just expanding to include that for that person, their internal story makes sense to them. So in our families, to me, what this book will do, yes, it focuses on school subjects. Yes, it focuses on the idea of cognitive thinking, but where it really lands emotionally and psychologically and relationally is in this idea of intimacy. And honestly, um, my favorite paragraph in the book, I'm going to read it to you. It's on page 25. Um, the alternative to certainty is intimacy. The means knowing more of the subject, so you could substitute person, with more of yourself. It looks like a greater and greater tenderness toward a field of study, a hunger to become close to it, to know its compelling contours and unavoidable flaws. It means reading the subject's ardent fans and listening with patience to its detractors. Intimacy leads to both a fascination with and protection of a subject's inherent value. There's inscrutability and mystery within every subject. Intimacy and learning means developing an ongoing relationship to that discipline, allowing it to morph and change, which requires humility. Mastery is a myth. So if we're talking about our relationships, you could replace the word subject in that paragraph with a person or your children, and the same thing is true developing an ongoing relationship to that person, to those children, allowing them to morph and change, which requires humility. Mastery is a myth. Thank you, Julie. Mastery is a myth. I, 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 that was tw page 24. 25, 25 26. and 26, 25. right. Okay, 25, 26. Fantastic. Okay, we are getting to our time. Um, it's 5.01. Oh, I just see... Uh, Saniha had, she left the stage. I was going to actually take your question really quickly, Saniha. Uh, I turned off the hand raising just so we can honor our time. If you would like to, and I hope I'm pronouncing you correctly, please let me know. If you would like to DM that question to myself or to Julie, please do so and then we can answer Perfect. it. Thank you for coming up. Julie, thank you so much. Beatrice, thanks for coming up. Beatrice is a friend of mine. She always brings such great value and questions to the conversation. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, I would like to just express my appreciation. As always, I learned something new. Um, I am intimacy, self-awareness, all of those, <laughs> those terms that I'm going to delve further into and, and reflect upon as well, too. And it's a process always. Right. I know I'm 
I'm a beginner, I think, in so many ways. So um, yeah, I'll be moving forward. Thank you so much for the book. You guys can actually tap the link at the top if you'd like to order the book or go to Amazon uh, and order Julie's book. I recommend it. I actually have it on my Kindle version. I'd love to have, I think I, I want to take notes in the margins. Mm. So I'm going to get another one. I will tell you too, the audiobook has a PDF file of all the activities. So if you purchase it on Audible, you will have a, a version that includes the activities. So you don't have to like push pause and start jotting things down. Uh, but thank you, Robin, for having me. What a great group. And this was really an enjoyable format. And I appreciate you having me into your space. Thank you so much. You're always welcome. So anytime you want to come back, I'm more okay. than happy to have Fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Have a great night, and we will see you again. Take care. Just look at our schedule, and you see the next room's coming up. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, Beatrice. And Tyra says goodbye. She had to head out. She says goodnight to everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, leave a review or comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas and reflections on the episode. You can go to the website imhomeschooling.com or email me directly, robin at imhomeschooling.com. homeschooling.com.